initiative here where we are engaged in a a two-year program, a two-year curriculum of, of learning what it means to live as witnesses for Jesus Christ where he's placed us every day. This is our second mini-series. We have another one coming in January that's, that's going to take us further. But, but this series of messages is a look at, at some salvation stories, some salvation journeys of men and women who were spiritually lost. And then because someone had the courage, someone took the initiative to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, they were found and saved and redeemed. And the story we're going to look at this morning, as I said, it is in Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to read it to you, with you, in just a few moments. But first, let me begin by sharing with you that once upon a time, true story, once upon a time, the, the great 19th century evangelist, D.L. Moody, uh, primarily of Chicago, but ministered in many places. But once upon a time, D.L. Moody approached a stranger, as was his custom, he did this sort of thing all the time, but he approached a stranger on the street and asked this gentleman about the condition of his soul. He asked this man about the condition of his soul, to which the man immediately snapped in response, the condition of my soul is none of your business. To which Moody replied, oh yes it is. To which the man then answered in a more calm and measured tone, well, then you must be D.L. Moody. Because in those days, everyone who had heard of D.L. Moody knew that he considered the condition of everybody's soul his business. Whomever he met, wherever he was, he was always ready to speak to people about Jesus Christ. He considered the condition of anyone and everyone's soul to be his chief business. This morning, we need to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, that is supposed to be our business too. However new we may be to the Christian faith, conversely, however long we may have already been in the Christian faith, there is something in the Bible called the Great Commission. It was given to us by Jesus himself in Matthew 28, and what it calls us to do, one way of expressing what it calls us to do, is to discern the spiritual condition of the people we meet as we interact with them to discern where they are, spiritually speaking, and with the Holy Spirit's guidance, with the Holy Spirit's help, take the opportunity, if God gives it to us, to help them take the next step. The next step in the journey towards saving faith, whether that is the first step, whether it's the final step, or more than likely one of the many, many steps that comes in between. Because again, and this is the premise of this entire mini-series of sermons, most people do not come to saving faith all at once. Most people are on a journey from spiritually lost to spiritually found. And what the Lord intends to do, God's master plan is to use people like us. And, and bring us into divinely orchestrated moments, to divinely orchestrated junctures between us and someone else along the way. And again, as we interact with them, as God gives us insight into their heart, do what we can to take another step. Now, so far in this series, we've looked at two faith journeys. The first one we looked at was the woman at the well in John chapter 4, where Jesus met with a woman and and led her to saving faith. And then last Sunday, we were in Acts chapter 9. We looked at the story of Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul. And what 
What I hope we've discovered, you may have discovered a number of things through these series, but what I hope we have discovered together primarily is that when we are available to be used and willing to take the initiative, when we are available and also willing, God can work in extraordinary ways. And this morning, we're going to we're going to look at another story, another bit of evidence of that, rea- uh, that reality by stepping into the journey of, a, of an Ethiopian bureaucrat, an, an Ethiopian envoy, a, a, a politically connected, powerful man who traveled to, here's the, the background of the story, we'll see this in a moment, who had traveled to and was now returning from Jerusalem When as he was traveling home, the Lord unexpectedly sent one of his servants, a man by the name of Philip, one of the early church's original deacons, sent Philip to him. And here's how their encounter went down. I'm going to begin reading this morning in Acts 8, 26. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter in verse 40, and I encourage you to follow along where this is what the word of God says. It says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up. And go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he, Philip, got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. In those days, the custom was to read aloud, even if you were by yourself. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. This is straight out of Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, throughout this series, and actually many times in the the series before it, you have heard me mention the importance of discerning where someone is on their spiritual journey. In order to help them take the next step, we've got to find a way to figure out where they are. But truth be told, we have not talked much at all about exactly how that's done. How do I discern where someone is? What can I do to figure out what's really going on in someone's heart? And and so this morning, that's where we're going to get started. That's essentially where we're headed. And to do so, there are two primary emphases we're going to take a look at in this story. The first one is this. We're going to begin this morning by searching out in this quest to understand how do I assess a person's spiritual condition by looking, number one, at evidence, evidence, 
of the eunuch's spiritual condition. First thing we want to look at this morning is some evidence of the eunuch's spiritual condition. And and as I see it, there's at least three things worth taking note of, the first of which is this. That we can say with certainty, number one, that this was a man who was spiritually curious. First thing we can say is that he was, in fact, curious. And and that's, that's plain to see based on verse 27, when it says that he'd come all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship. Now, in those days, Ethiopia, the kingdom of Ethiopia, wasn't exactly where we'd find it on the map today. But, but it's widely believed, it's widely understood, that this would have been a journey of more than 200 miles, which sounds like nothing to us. But in those days, to go 200 miles from the Ethiopian kingdom to Jerusalem by chariot was a journey of at least a couple, if not several weeks. I mean, this was a big endeavor. It was an arduous proposition. And... And and from the text alone, it's hard to know exactly, as he's making this trip, where this man stood in relation to the Jewish faith. I even wondered, as I looked at it, how did he even know about it at all? What in the world was it that would prompt him to go to Jerusalem in an effort to worship? We don't know the whys and the hows, the background story, but I think we can be sure of, what we can be sure of, is that something about it had captured his attention. Somehow, somewhere, someone had said something to him that made him curious, captured his attention, and compelled him to make this serious trip to find out more. And, and I believe that since verse 28, look at your Bible, says that as he was returning, sitting in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah that I think it's probably safe to assume that now having been to Jerusalem, and I'll give you some more evidence for this in a moment, but now on his way home, he still hadn't quite found what he was looking for. I think it's safe to say he still hadn't quite found what he was looking for. In other words, even on his way home, he's still curious. Actually, I think it was more than that. I actually believe if if we look at this story objectively, the second thing we can say about this man's spiritual condition, that the trip to Jerusalem had actually moved him from curious to concerned. I think we have a man here, as Philip encounters him, who is now deeply spiritually concerned, and here's why. Because when verses 27 and 28 tell us, look at your Bible again, verse 27, that he was, picking it up in the middle of the verse, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he'd come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. I I think we're supposed to conclude, one of the things we're supposed to conclude about this man is is that he was more than just a globe-trotting executive. He was more than just some sort of political big shot who just took the advantage to travel wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, because the fact of the matter is this. The fact that it says he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasury, what we believe looking back into the details of that story is that that this meant he was a man of immense political power. In all likelihood, he was second in the entire Ethiopian kingdom, only subservient to Queen Candace herself. If you want another biblical parallel, he he was Joseph to Candace's pharaoh. Candace, queen of the Ethiopian, was a a monarch of immense power. He was probably the one really in charge of the day-to-day big business of the kingdom. And, of course, the fact that he's in charge of the treasury means that he's not only a man of immense power, he was probably also a man of considerable wealth. 
I mean, if you're going to put somebody in charge of the treasury, you are going to pay them enough that they don't want to dip into the treasury off the top secretly for themselves. So we've got a man of great political power. We've got a man of significant, perhaps, wealth. But despite all of that, what wasn't he? Satisfied. He wasn't satisfied. He lacked some sense of internal peace. I mean, why else would he take a leave of absence from that job, travel over 200 miles, be gone more than a month to go to church. Why would he do it? But You know, I think that it may be the note about him being a eunuch where the plot truly thickens because while in some ancient circles by this point in time, eunuch had simply become a title. It had moved from, from one thing to another. It was a title in many ancient kingdoms that simply was a synonym for high-ranking government executive, politically powerful person. In that sense, it was, it was a title. It was a placeholder. But in its truest sense, and some of you may know this, some of you may not, but in its truest sense, to be a eunuch meant that you were a man who had been physically emasculated, probably at a young age that that had been done for whatever reason to you. And, and while we're not going to get into the logic behind that or, 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 or the whys and the hows, any of that this morning, you can do that in your own time. You can do your own homework. But the fact of the matter is that, that if that was the case for this man, and I think it probably was, I have a hunch that that actually, the reality of that condition, is what worried him most. Because you see, think about this. He went to Jerusalem to worship. We don't know how much he knew about the Old Testament law. We know that he had a copy of, of a scroll of Isaiah on his way home, but we don't know if he'd seen anything prior to that. And it says he went to Jerusalem to worship. But what he may have discovered when he got there is that the Old Testament law specifically said in the law of Moses that a man who was a eunuch is not allowed in the temple, or at least into the inner courts of worship, as other men were. He did not have the liberty to go and do the thing he'd gone to Jerusalem to do. So, on top of already being a foreigner, on top of already being a Gentile outside the covenant people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now he has this third strike against him. Again, maybe he knew that in advance, but I think if he had, he never would have gone at all. But now he has, and he's found it out. So I think there's a question running through his mind as he's traveling home in his chariot, reading Isaiah. Is there any hope for someone like me? Does someone like me have a place in God's kingdom? Or am I out of eternal luck? Is there any hope for me? Which is why when, when Philip showed up, the third observation we can make about this man's condition, about his spiritual condition, is not only had, had he been curious and now probably deeply concerned, I think it's safe to assume that by the time Philip arrived, we can say he was close. All right, spiritually speaking, he was close. The Spirit, verse 29, said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And before long, what does it say in verse 35? Philip was able to open his mouth and beginning from this scripture, preach Jesus to him. 
You know, sometimes the people we interact with, the unbelievers that we know, many of whom we love, not just strangers, but family and close friends, the truth of the matter is they're far from ever making a decision for Jesus. Or at least that's the way it looks to us. Maybe they don't have all the information. Maybe they've had a very stubborn heart, resistant to any mention of Christ or the gospel or even just of church. Sometimes the people we encounter are, as we expect them to be, far off. But what this story ought to make us wonder is how often, as was the case here, are the people we meet a lot closer than we think? Why do we, as many of us probably do, assume they are so far off? They are loster than lost. They are harder than hard. And they aren't. I don't know the answer to this question. I'm just asking the question. How many people might we know, might we be going back to school or to work or wherever it is we're going to tomorrow, maybe even still today, how many people might each of us know who would sincerely and even gladly discuss spiritual things if we gave them the chance? Would they talk about the Bible? Would they be willing to ask you questions if they knew you were willing to sit and listen? I don't know because I'm really bad at this myself right now, but I just have this hunch that maybe it's more often than we think. Maybe it's more often than we think. And that's why the other thing I think we need to glean from this story, as we get just a few clues, a little bit of evidence about the eunuch's spiritual condition, is now we need to sort of flip the script to the other side of, of the story and, and, and see if we can get hold of some, secondly, some insights from Philip on living as a witness. We've got some evidence from the eunuch of his spiritual condition. Now, what did Philip, as an evangelist, as someone ready and willing to share his faith, what did he do that we can learn from as we desire to live as witnesses, because here's the thing. When it comes to discerning where someone is on their spiritual journey, here's what I want you to know. Philip has a lot to offer us. And you know what the good news is? It ain't very complicated. Most of what Philip has to show us is not all that hard. And again, I hope that's good news to you because I think what I'm going to share with you ought to be good news. Because as I see it, Philip, in the same way there are three bits of evidence about the eunuch's spiritual condition, there are three insights Philip can offer. There's probably more. I'm going to keep it to three, the first of which is this. The first thing Philip did that enabled him to live as a witness, as an effective witness in this situation, is he, number one, obeyed the Spirit. He obeyed the prompting of God's Spirit. Look at verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. Now that sounds pretty straightforward. Sounds pretty simple. And of course, when we read the Bible, we know that people are supposed to do what God tells them to do. And that when they don't do what God tells them to do, they always end up in trouble. So we would think, hey, this is a pretty straightforward deal, but not so fast. Because at this particular moment, if you go back and read the first half of Acts chapter 8, what you realize is that where Philip was at the moment, he was in Samaria and, and ministry in Samaria was booming. 
It was thriving. The gospel had come to the region of Samaria. And it says in the first half of Acts chapter 8 that Philip is daily preaching to massive crowds. There are people just getting up every morning to come hear him speak. And, And it furthermore says that as he's preaching, he's doing signs and miracles and wonders. And in fact, Acts chapter 8 says that things were going so well, ministry was so vibrant in Samaria that Peter and John left what they were doing in Jerusalem to come down to Samaria and have a look. They want to see what's going on because the reports coming back are so astonishing. What I'm saying is Philip may not have wanted to leave all of that. I'm needed here. I'm thriving here. I'm getting stuff done here that matters. But verse 27 says that when the angel said go, Philip did what? Look at it. He got up and went. He got up and went. By the way, not yet knowing what God had in mind. The Spirit simply said, go. But we can see more because we have the whole story. And what we see is that that one, that initial step of obedience to the Spirit's prompting led him to another in verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and what did he do? He asked him a question. Do you understand what you are reading? Now honestly, I I wish the Bible gave us a checklist. Just three or four boxes we could go through that would help us determine someone's spiritual condition. It's just A, B, C, and D, and that'll let you know right where they are. That would be wonderful, and I wish the Bible had done that, but it hasn't, and it doesn't. There is no biblical checklist. Billy Graham didn't leave one behind either for us to look to, to to say, how do I know where this person is? D.L. Moody didn't have a checklist either. I wish there was, but there's not. However, What we can learn from Philip's example is that when we consciously choose, A, to be available, just available, and and that's as simple as waking up in the morning saying, Lord, I'm willing to be used today. When we are available and we are, be attentive, available and attentive, attentive and available, when we slow down in our busy lives just enough to pay attention, not to just what is going on around us, but who is going on around us. If we're available and attentive, I can't tell you how he does it. I just know the Spirit has ways of letting you know, of prompting you, of nudging you, of giving you a helpful shove to go ahead and ask a question. And then maybe another. And then another one after that. After all, the the first step in meeting anyone where they are for any reason is what? Initiating a conversation. I've got to be willing to speak up and speak in. And then what Philip shows us is if we are conscious and willing to obey the Holy Spirit, to obey the promptings he brings us, brings our way, the second thing, and I think this may be, at least for me, I'm speaking for myself, this is the most important one for me this morning, and I've been thinking about it a lot this week, is secondly, what we see in Philip's example is that he listened attentively. He obeyed the Spirit, and then he listened attentively. I've been a little concerned this past week as I was studying and preparing that over these past Sundays, throughout this series and the one before it, that I have come across as unnecessarily 
harsh or critical when talking about my past evangelistic experiences and training, that, that I, I, I've been a little rough on those experiences. And that it hasn't been my, my point, my intention at all to say that those, those had no value, no merit, that they, that they were all wrong. I haven't meant that at all. But what I have been trying to say is that my For me, your experience may be different, but most of my evangelistic training in the past has focused primarily and in most cases exclusively on closing the deal. How do I help someone pray the prayer? How do I help someone trust Jesus? And and we have to know how to do that. We need to know what what it looks like, what it sounds like to walk someone through that final saving step. But there's a problem, at least for me, there's a problem, and it's this, that in those scenarios, when all, most if not all I know how to do is close the deal, you know what the danger is? The danger is I do all the talking. Because what? I've got a destination in mind. I've got four spiritual laws you need to hear. I've got six steps on the Romans road, and I've got to get them in order, and you've got to read them all and agree with them. I've got, I got some colored beads, and I need to explain them to you. And again, all that stuff's very, very helpful, but if that's all I know, I do all the talking. And, and most of us can be persuasive enough, if we're trained well enough, to get somebody through that and go, do you want to believe? And they go, yes. But have we heard their heart? And then three months later, they're nowhere to be found. Why? Because we got them to pray a prayer, but we never heard what was really on their heart. We got a mental, verbal assent, but maybe not a heart transformation. I'm not saying that always happens, but I'm saying it happens. I can persuade you. I can talk you into something, and then somebody else can come along and talk you out of it. If that's all we've done is have a conversation in that way, if all I've done is given you a pitch that you agree to, and the dangers we fail to listen to what's really on their heart. And, and while, yes, there's no question, Philip did plenty of talking as they raced down the Gaza road. The scripture makes it clear that he also let the eunuch share from his heart. And then he responded accordingly. Look at verse 30. Philip ran up, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked him a question. Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And together, what did they do? They dug into the passage he was reading. Next question. Verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip as they've studied the passage he was already in. They dealt with the question that was on his heart. The uh, the, the eunuch then says to Philip, please tell me. Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from everybody, look and say, this scripture, this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Next question. As they went along the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37 says, and it's not in every English translation, but it's, it's an accurate representation at least of what was said. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he, the eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Philip was ready, he was informed, he was equipped, but he listened. And he let it unfold at a pace in which the eunuch could process what they 
we're doing. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I need to see in this story. Philip did not do anything special. He didn't do any signs and wonders. He didn't have a pre-planned sermon. He asked a question. When he was invited to, sat down with someone and said, how can I help? What do you want to know? And he responded to the questions on his heart. All he did was listen attentively and answer accordingly based on what he knew. And that is why, by giving the Ethiopian eunuch space to do the math for himself, to process what he's hearing, that then created an opportunity. The third thing we need to see about Philip's example is that is when he pointed to Jesus. He obeyed the Spirit, he listened attentively, and he pointed to Jesus. Again, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning... Beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And why wouldn't he? Because a couple years at most were all that had passed. Since a man named Jesus of Nazareth, I don't know, but Philip may well have locked eyes with him on occasion. The eunuch would have been in Ethiopia. He wouldn't have, but but it, we're only a year or two or three maybe out from, from a, a, a real man named Jesus of Nazareth who went to the cross, who did exactly what it says in Isaiah in the passage this man was reading. That's what he did. He had been led as a lamb to the slaughter. Philip could say, there was a man named Jesus, and, and, and he didn't, when, when attacked and accused and mocked, he didn't lash back. He kept his mouth silent. And then he could have walked him through the rest of Isaiah 53 and said, yeah, now see what you're reading right here. This was Jesus. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Jesus did that. He obeyed his Father's will. He bore all our sin upon himself. And if we will trust him and what he did on our behalf, we will be saved. And you know what? You can do that too. And so can I. We can obey the Spirit's promptings. We can listen attentively to people's questions. And when the Lord provides an opening, we don't have to know everything, but we can point them to Jesus. We can point them to Jesus. And, and who knows? Maybe the Spirit has already prepared them in that moment, to take the final salvation step. You know, I really believe that, that the last thing Luke, the author of the book of Acts, would ever want us to do after reading this story is think, I could never do that. To look at these stories and say, I could never do that. I mean, I love Jesus, but talking about him with others, that's just not my thing. We know who those people are in the church, and we'll let them do it. I'll be a good example, right? And I'll let other people do the talk. I think that's the last thing Luke wants us to do when we read the book of Acts. To say, I love Jesus, but I can't talk about him. And you know what? On your own, you're exactly right. You can't. You can't help, I can't help anybody spiritually on my own. Let me remind you of something this morning as we close. You are not on your own. You're not on your own. You are a son or a daughter of Almighty God. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You 
have met the Savior, Jesus Christ. You can tell someone else what he did for you and how you came to know him. Because kind of like D.L. Moody, I bet there are some people in your life whose souls you're concerned about. We can do what Philip did here. We can obey, we can listen, and we can point them to Jesus. Because can I tell you a secret? This is a really important secret. And I saved it for the end so you would hear it and remember it. If God has led you, or this week God leads you into a divine appointment, into a Jesus-centric conversation, you know what that means? It means he's already been at work in that person's life. He's not just been preparing you for this moment. He's been preparing them for this moment. The Spirit's ahead of you, getting them ready. Now, you don't know how they're going to respond. Maybe they respond in faith. Maybe they respond in anger. But if God leads you to talk to them, he has been preparing them to talk with you. And that is why today's big idea is this, that whenever God prompts, he also provides. Whenever God prompts, he also provides. Somehow, he will find a way to work through people like me and you. Father, I thank you that you use people like us. There are certainly more effective ways that you could have, at least from our perspective, ensured that the gospel is preached to every nation, that people learn of Jesus. But Father, in your wisdom and really in your kindness, you chose us. Father, you know how inadequate we feel. You know that even despite ourselves, that that the thought of living as a witness and sharing our faith, for some reason it frightens us, Father. But somebody somewhere once was willing to obey the Spirit's prompting to listen to us attentively and point us to Jesus, and that's why we're saved. And Father, we are so thankful for each and every person who's done that for each and every one of us. Father, I pray. Lord, I pray from my heart. I need to to take these sermons and these studies and, and make them a reality in my life and, and, and a few others of us I'm sure do as well. Father, we need to do more than take notes and come back next Sunday. Father, we need to practice. Lord, I don't know what kind of divine appointments you're going to bring each of our ways this week, but help us to, at the very least, be available, be attentive, be obedient, and point to Christ. Father, make us good listeners so that we can hear where people genuinely are. And Father, assure us that if you prompt, you will provide. Father, take the things of truth that we've dug into this morning and seal them up in our hearts. Let all the rest slip away so that we go home and into the week looking to Jesus only, in whose name we pray. Amen.